I'm, re I'm really not, uh, th this, what I'm going to share with you is not, is, is good, but uh, the mode in which I'm going to share it, I'm not really comfortable. Um, when I went through homiletics in Bible college, I was like, you know, I did everything exactly the way I was taught in sermon preparation, and, and uh, that evolves over a period of time, and there's points and stuff, and none of that is going to be this morning. And so I'm not really comfortable with this kind of uh, approach, but really, a, a few days ago, God just said, set that aside, I want you to share something else. So the title on the back of your, um, of your handout is not exactly what I'm going to be sharing. It, it's related to it, but it's instead of now what with a question mark, it's why with a question mark. Why? Um, Jesus wanted his men. I'm, I'm going to be going to Acts chapter 1 so you can turn there, and I'm going to touch on some passages there. Um, Jesus obviously called these men to be his, his group. And he highly selected them. And the Bible says he had an all-night prayer meeting before we called them. They went into an exclusive place, reclusive place, and prayed all night. And then the next morning, he just said, I want you and you. There's a bunch of people around him. But he's like, I want you and you and you. And, and he picked the 12 guys that he was going to pour himself into for the next three years, and some say that probably that was closer to 40 months, even maybe 42 months. One of the neat things that happened to me when I went out of high school and into college at Jacksonville State University, you know, the whole thing was kind of like overwhelming. I had like 40-something people in my graduating class, and the university setting just utterly overwhelmed me. So you go to all of these places where you register for your classes, and it's so much better now, but... You know, got people in here said, don't get them, don't get them. Oh, you got the wrong one. You know, all the reputation. But this is the neatest thing I thought about uh, college was um, instead of having the same subject every day, I had it like for two days. I said, how cool is that? I don't have to go every day. I thought that was the coolest thing. And, and per hour tuition, and you kind of carry like 16 hours or 14 hours, and if you're really desperate, 18 hours, and all of those things. Well, if you think about these 12 men being with Jesus in a daily environment of teaching for three years plus, that's probably the level of a doctorate when you can accumulate all the hours that he taught them and he poured into them. And he wanted them to be ready for this moment, this moment recorded in Acts 1. Not necessarily this moment recorded in Acts 2. But he did all that he did to prepare them for the moment in Acts 1. And that was the moment he would leave them. In fact, he spent more time talking about him leaving them in that Passover meal than anything else. He again and again stressed to them, I'm, I'm not going to be with you. It's, it's coming to an end. My presence with you is going to be finished up here. And they were having a difficult time processing those thoughts. But there was not a single day that we know of that they were not with Jesus in some capacity. Now, the Bible tells us that on one occasion, Jesus went up into a mountain ridge 
And um, he took three of the disciples, that, that inner circle, Peter, James, and John, took them up, and that's where the tra uh, transfiguration took place. You remember that? And they was up there for a few days, and the other nine were down here trying to deliver a, a demon-possessed child. You remember that? And Jesus was away from them during that time. Just look what happened to them when he was away from them. <laughs> they was like, hey, it's not working. When you was with us, it worked. And so you never saw Jesus in the Bible away from them for like a day or two. He might have been when he sent them across the Sea of Galilee one, one day. And in the middle of the night, the squall came over those Galilean hills. And my dad and I went to uh, Israel together in the late 80s. And we were there uh, up around Capernaum area. And uh, we were waiting to get some lunch. We had already been around the place there. And like that, we looked out, and the Sea of Galilee was white capping. I mean, like that. The, the mountains along the eastern edge of the Sea of Galilee are Galilean mountains. And that wind comes over. When it comes over, it just comes down with force, and that water looks like it's boiling. And that's what happened when Jesus sent them across and said, uh, I'll join you on the other side. And you know, he came walking to them on water to rescue them. You never see him, though, being, he, he's leaving them for a long period of time. He's always with them. They were inseparable for all practical purposes for three years plus. They left their vocations. They left their families. They put complete trust and confidence in him. They were with him. This was not like uh, they were with him during the day and then went home. They were with him 24-7. And all in those few days leading up to Good Friday, that horrific scene, Jesus bloodied, brutalized, disfigured in such a way you could not recognize him. It's kind of like uh, the scenes when you see in lower Manhattan at 9-11, at the people in the streets seeing those World Trade Center towers on fire, and, and many of them have their hand over their mouths in utter overwhelmed by what they were seeing. And then when they fell, the whole nation that was watching was aghast. And I remember saying to our district superintendent, we were at a district meeting there in Montgomery, and I turned to Brother Glover and I said, I just saw all those people in those two buildings die. I'm going home. And I think that's, that's a scene nobody... You know, I didn't see it live, but some of you might have seen the live the space shuttle when it exploded on live television. I walked into an airport to pick up some people coming in from Vietnam. We was helping resettle them, and we were their contact for a Christian organization, and we saw these people around television, like, what's going on? Walked over, and I saw that space shuttle explode. And I was like, oh, no. And I think that's what... These men who had been with him, think about just hours before this, just hours before this, they were sitting with him around the table celebrating Passover. Now they're looking at this horrific scene. And they struggled. They struggled. They, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And even, you know, later, just three days later, when Mary came says, he's alive, they didn't believe that. And one of the reasons they didn't believe that is because the vision, the, the picture they had, the image they had in their, in their head was him hanging on that cross. 
incredibly beaten. And they just, they just couldn't, they couldn't, they were in a state of shock. They just couldn't go there. I think they probably wanted to, but their shock turned to wonder when, you know, they found the tomb, Peter and John ran there, and there was the clothes, and so they started processing all this. But just a handful of appearances, they were still struggling to believe that it was really happening. And I'm saying all of that to impress upon your minds this morning, if you will, Think about three years plus being with the same teacher seven days a week. And that teacher is the Son of God. That teacher is the miracle worker. That teacher is the one that opens blind eyes, feeds thousands from a small lunch. They looked at him and he was, he was their hope. He was their dependence. And after a handful of visits, and I'm talking about real touch me, I'm here eating breakfast one morning on that familiar shoreline of that lake. I mean, they had to sit down, they looked across, and, and they were still struggling. But think about this. After all those visits, the day arrived in Acts 1 for that final appearance. That final appearance. And you want to know something? They didn't think that was the final appearance. Because while their, their doubts had been probably settled, their questions had not been settled, right? Because the last thing they said to him was a question. And it had nothing to do with what God really wanted to do. It was in their minds as to what they wanted to happen. And the question was what? Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's verse 6, I believe it is. That's the question. After all of this, and he's meeting with them, and this was a pretty large gathering. Most people on the Mount of Olives believe that there was Maybe a few hundred people there. We do know from what Paul said that Jesus appeared to at least 500 people at one time. And so, was this a time? We don't know, but we do know that he's standing in front of them. And this is the question they have. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? Are you at this time going to raise up Israel above the Roman occupation that we're in and make us a nation once again? That was the question. Is it now? Is that what you're going to do now? And to help drive my point home to you this morning is I want you to see that those last three years, that that horrific death, a life-changing resurrection, and over a month of appearances, it was not enough for these men. And even Jesus shows that the realities that they had accepted, that he is alive, that he is, this is incredible to look at him, totally alive, that it wasn't enough yet. Something else had to happen. Jesus answered their question in one breath, in verse 7 and 8. And not only did he answer their question in one breath, he really gave them a final instruction. Here's how it's in verse 7. He said to them, 
And you know what? I just, I just love this. He's like, he could have said, y'all on the wrong page. Y'all way off. Y'all way off subject. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And in one breath, this comes next. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Pentecost had a purpose. Pentecost had a why to it. What Jesus just gave them was a strategic missional plan for what they were supposed to put their hearts and lives to. Their preparation was to do God's will. It seems the way that that Luke records this, that this is happening like boom, boom, boom. Because the very next verse says, after Jesus said this, boom, he went. Not disappeared, but he kind of levitated up and they watched him go until they could not see him any longer. And they're still looking, trying to see him through the clouds. I would be that way. I definitely would be that way. My mom had a tradition. We kind of we understood it after we became parents. And our children got to be adults. When we left her house for anything... She would walk us out to the driveway, watch us get in the car. You remember this, Brenda? And my kid's like, Grandma's out there. She's out there. And she wanted us to blow the horn when we got on Highway 280, and she was standing there waving to us until she couldn't see us. And our younger sibling, Becky, was still home, says, every time she walked in the house, she had tears rolling down her face. And it's like that. They were looking up like, I don't know, maybe in their minds. Who, who knows what was in their minds? But it take two angels to come and tell them, okay. Right? Look at that. This is verse 9. Right after verse 8. And, and to the ends of the earth. And he said this. After he said this, is Luke said, after he said this, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes. A cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white, I kind of take that, that they were angels that just appeared. Just a wild guess here. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That's it. A last answer to their last question and a final word for their purpose. And they headed off to Jerusalem to find that second floor room where Pentecost would take place. But go back to verse, the latter part of verse 4 and verse 5. Do not leave Jerusalem. Same setting. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift of my Father that my Father promised which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if you drop down to verse 8, it makes sense, doesn't it? He just told them, do not leave Jerusalem, do not do anything I've told you to do, do not do any of the ministry that I've told you to be prepared for, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Pentecost happened in the next chapter, but Pentecost had a purpose.
And that purpose can really be in one key word. What is that word? Power for witnesses. Power is energy. Which way is that energy going to be directed? Power in... He did not give us the gift promised for the, by the Father for just power, for us to have power. Are you following me? That power was for a specific purpose. It was a strategic, missional plan for them to take the gospel into Jerusalem, into Judea, north into Samaria, and to the four corners of the world, into the places throughout the world. Do not leave until you become empowered with the Holy Spirit. Here's that word witness. If you look it up, it's the word martis. Martyres is the plural here, martis. If it sounds a little bit like martyr, there's a reason why it sounds like martyr. Because it is the same word. I don't know if it took on that connotation when he told him, says, you'll receive power to be my martyrs. That might have been a little bit different. <laughs> oh, great. But it's the same word. It's witness. And if you, took, if you look up martyr and the etymology of martyr, if you look that up and you just Google that, it comes right back to that Greek word and it says witness. It does not mean necessarily someone who dies, but it became that connotation. This is found 34 times in the New Testament. And for any of you that get tired of me saying stuff that's found so many times in the New Testament, I'm just going to increase saying it. <laughs> because the, our English version just does not, the translation just does not carry the weight of it. In, in uh, the Greek culture of that day, Here's, here's what a martyr was. Here, here's how they used martyr. Martyr was like a notary, a notary public. Someone who could attest to knowing something happened, who could see the signature, who could see the contract, and says, yes, that party signed that contract, and they put their seal on it. That person was not a notary in their terms. That person was a martyr, a legal term. That person attested to such and such happening. That's what he was saying. In their mind, they knew what he was saying. That they were to be personally attesting to what everything he had taught them. But there's also that historical context. We were there. We saw. We heard. And in this kind of culture in the, in the Roman world... They put a lot more credence in a witness who had seen something than someone who had heard something. The eyewitness, the eyewitness account. And in a historical sense, that is, he said, you will be my eyewitnesses to take everything that you've seen and everything that you've heard, take it to the ends of the earth. And, but here's the last sense of that. It's the ethical side of martyr. It's be, willing to attest to something to the point of facing a violent death. 
And as I speak this morning, our brothers and sisters in Christ in some places of the world are the ethical sense of that word. Especially in Nigeria and in Kenya. That's not making the news for some reason. Thousands of being, thousands of Christians are being murdered. Because they're, they're given the choice of renouncing their faith, kind of like when communism overran Korea, and the first place they wanted to go, the communists, when they came into those cities, was to find the places of faith, the leaders of faith, the pastors, those who they thought were their biggest challenge, and they would put them in front of everybody and tell them to recant, that they don't believe all of that. And many of them laid down their lives to say, we will never reject who we believe in. And that's what people are doing all over the world. We have first-hand experience. I believe it's time for us in this room to consider what that means is to be his witnesses. Right? What does it mean for us to be his witnesses? His martyrs. Have you observed something, anything firsthand? You know, the, one, the song, the beautiful song, that, all my life he has been faithful. That sounds like a personal testimony to me. That's like a first-person experience. First-hand I know what I'm talking about because I've experienced it. To have first-hand knowledge of salvation, to hear the call of God, it is not an intellectual consent to evidence, but it is an encounter with the subject of that evidence that transforms a person's heart and life. It is not saying, as Paris Reedhead would say, uh-huh, to a couple of questions. It is experiencing the presence of God through the conviction of the Holy Spirit when we know that Jesus cared for us when he hung on the cross. And that experience was personal. Miracles happen, don't they? We've seen some miracles happen here not many days ago. But the single greatest miracle is being introduced to Jesus. The Holy Spirit introducing us to the Son of God and that we know Him through the agency of the Holy Spirit. The omnipresence of God causes us to enjoy fellowship, communion with Him, with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. So why Pentecost? Why did Pentecost take place? Just like the disciples they had three years getting to know Jesus while being transformed, but they needed more. I want you to think about that. They had as best a revelation of Jesus that anybody could have because they were with him all of those days, all those months, three plus years. And he was telling them they needed more than that. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit to really be his witnesses. That is amazing to me. If it was intellectual, if it was informational, if it was social, they had it. They could take what they learned from the Lord without anything else, but he told them that's not enough. That's amazing to me. If it wasn't enough for them, it's not enough for us. It's not enough for us. 
We can study, we can learn, we can be uh, good in apologetics, but that is not a substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do all of those things through learning, through training, but we have to have the Holy Spirit's empowerment. We know that the most compelling testimony is a first-hand testimony. Not hearing it from a third party, but that Jesus has come and has invaded our personal space, and in doing so, he's changed our lives. He's changed the way we think. You know, self-doubt cannot stand a chance in the face of the overpowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And there is plenty of self-doubt right here in this room. Right here in this room. Well, I can't do that. I'm not called to be a soul winner. That's calling to someone else's. I don't know if I can talk to people about things like that. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. And even if we think we can, (laughs) it's kind of like when I arrived at Bible college. You know, Bible college is like, I thought this was going to be like a glorified Sunday school class. Oh, Lord, there's people there that needed Jesus. (laughs) She had two roommates that needed Jesus. (laughs) All the torture she went through in her room, her roommates. But I... They said, you, you got to be connected to a ministry. And they says, there's this one group that goes to Dade City. It's known as a kind of a wild place. Every Saturday night, and they witness to people, and they hand out tracts, and they engage people. I said, well, I'll, I'll do that. And they says, well, we meet a couple hours before we go and, and, uh, for prayer, and, and we'll leave at such and such a time. I just skipped prayer. I just showed up when we were leaving. And, buddy, I got gnawed up so much. I was like, I'm going to be at prayer next time. I thought I'd just go with them and just, we'll just do it. No, you just don't do it. Because I wasn't used to talking to people like that. And here we are heading into Easter, Good Friday, one of the best times for us as believers. Would you agree? I mean, Christmas is nice, but we really, don't, we really don't know if that's really the birthday of Jesus. We celebrate it as such, and I'm okay with that. But this is the reality. The resurrection of Jesus is dated. Three days after Passover, he was raised from the dead. And every year, someone asked me this morning, says, why is it four weeks different from one year to the next? I said, I don't know. I don't do the calendar here. But here it is going to be like advanced into April. Do we have a strategy how we're going to use this opportunity to share Jesus with people? Do you have a strategy? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Can I ask you something? Are you kind of past the point and tired of being silent? I think you know what I mean. Going through a day, a week, a month, a year, or more, without engaging anyone in any kind of conversation about where they're at. And he said, 
you'll be my witnesses that the power you receive through the Holy Spirit right where you live, Jerusalem, areas near there, Judea. Jerusalem was in Judea. And then Samaria, that's just north. And then beyond that, he said, you'll receive power to be my witnesses. The, pers- the purpose of Pentecost was not so we could be called Pentecostal. And that we have some kind of spiritual credential with that terminology. That did not happen for us to have a label. That happened so that we could have a voice. A witness is a voice. I'm probably making some of you a little nervous. But isn't it about time we step away from our lack of supply, our lack of confidence, our lack of peace, and step into the power of the Holy Spirit and do what God's called us to do? Right? If the praise team can come back up. See, no points, no one, two, three, four, five, just sharing my heart this morning. Anybody here need boldness? Think about this. They received that power in the next chapter on the day of Pentecost. They received that power. And boy, were they energized. A little later, they're threatened. They're threatened with consequences that they keep doing this sort of thing. Keep going out there and telling people about Jesus, him being alive. They were brought in and they were threatened. And in chapter 4, they came back and they told everybody in the group, this is what they've said to us. And you know what they did? They had a prayer meeting. And you know what happened after that prayer meeting? Pentecost in that upper room needed to be renewed. And said the place where they were praying was shaken. This is at the end of chapter 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Anyone here need boldness? Anyone here need boldness? I've been exposed to EE. Evangelism explosion. Knocked on doors. We've done that here. Canvas people. Praying for people around us. I want to see them saved. I want to see my neighbors saved desperately. 30 plus years ago, we were in Jacksonville, Florida, and, and things were just happening beyond us. It wasn't us. It was just God. And this fella, Brittany, remember Bill? Bill, Bill was a unique person. He came up to me and he says, you know what, I can't do anything in the church, but I can drive a van and I can go around and pick up people. I doubt if he went past the sixth grade, he was, but he was so sincere. We gave him the keys to that van and he went around picking up people. And I said, hey, Bill, I'm going out to Barnett's pastor school on evangelism, Saturday Soul Winning Society. Anybody ever heard of that? I said, you want to go with me? He says, oh, yeah. He's a big, heavy guy, but just 
sincere, simple but sincere heart, a heart of gold. We had someone, we went with the cheap route. You could sign up like we need a home opener and, and uh, you didn't have to rent a car. They picked you up at the airport and this guy maybe in his 70s picked us up at the airport, me and Bill, and he says, are you hungry? I'll feed you lunch. And it was us. I said, whoa, they're really rolling out the carpet. And we got our lunch and it was in fast food. I forget what it was, but we sat down and, and our driver in his 70s went around to every table every table in that restaurant asking people if they knew Jesus and that Jesus died for their sins. And I'm talking, well, they picked people to really show us how it's done. And we're watching him and he goes to every table and he comes back and, and like nothing, nothing to it. I find out later that the guy that picked us up had only been saved a few years. And someone said he was so overwhelmed by that reality that he purposed to tell every person he could what Jesus could do for them because he did it in him. In the last few years of that guy's life, he probably led more people to Jesus than anybody would know. We went to our home, our home openers who provided a place for us to sleep during the... And they opened the door and there was a queen-size bed I could, I could just feel Bill. He's looking at that. And I'm not even looking at him. But he's looking at that. And they walk away and he looks at me and says, Pastor, I've never slept with a man before. And I said, I said, you're not going to sleep tonight with one either. I said, I'm going to be as far on the edge of my bed as you are on the edge of your bed. He said, I don't know if that's going to work either. I said, well... One of us to get on the floor. We left that place. We were so energized. We started Saturday Soul Winning Society. And in a way, I just feel in some ways I'm a failure today because leading people to Lord underneath trees, people working on their car in their driveway. We weren't in a really good residential area. We were, that church was not in a really nice place, was it? It was out of the way. So the people we had near us were rough people. But we experienced a Pentecost that gave us boldness. I really want to ask you an honest question. Are you okay with not being a voice? Are you okay? I'm not. I want a resurgence of that. And I think some of our issues is not a lack of boldness. It's just we're so busy. We're so focused. We're going. We've got, we got things to check off and we're doing it. And, and we can't even hear the Holy Spirit say, just that girl behind the counter, don't walk away from her. She's at a desperate point. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the way, friends, Pentecost should work. Would you stand?